Well, I'm glad to glad to be here, and I've been asked to make sure I speak loudly. So if I if I don't go like that, if you can't hear, it's, it's good to be with you. I am. Um, I have been asked to speak and to teach about the third article of the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So my plan is to work phrase by phrase and then have a conversation as we move from phrase to phrase. The third article, every clause, has to do with the Spirit in various ways, as we'll see. So um, I want this to be as helpful as possible to you. So I'm going to introduce and, and give some, some key themes and then um, invite you to ask questions. If not, I, I teach for a living, so I can always adapt. And um, um, I always tell my, my students that no matter what question you ask, I make it look wonderful. Even if it's uh, not formed that well, I make it look brilliant um, to try to invite them to participate. And that sometimes is harder than others, but I'm sure today it would be uh, easy. So feel free, um, don't be shy and ask, ask questions. Um, so let's talk about the Holy Spirit. If you're in the third article of the Creed, you are um, confessing that you believe, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things I teach my students, and it's, it's an important idea, especially for those of us here, is um, many people instinctually think about the Spirit like the Spirit work, as if the Spirit works like the Force in Star Wars. And that is not the case. Um, so if you could ever replace the spirit with the force and it would still work, that means you probably have some work to do in whatever you're thinking or doing. Um, as if the spirit is something you tap into or manipulate in some way or coincide with like a Jedi. We are not Jedi. Um, the spirit is God's personal presence in the world. God is spirit, father, son, and spirit. So whenever you encounter the Spirit, you're encountering God. God is at work. And God is working personally as a personal agent in your life. God is interacting with you when we think about our spiritual life. So when we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're confessing that God is with us. God is at work. And God is working out his saving plan. And if you look at the story of Scripture through the architecture of the Spirit, when you think about the Spirit's work, there is a, a narrative that's happening. And you could do it in many ways, but you could think of the spirit who's hovering over the waters is there bringing order to creation, but of course human sin distorts that. And the culmination of that distortion showing up from Genesis 3 to 11 is the Tower of Babel, when human beings are scattered in their languages and are uh, broken in their unity. And then God in Genesis 12 starts the saving plan through Israel. And as part of that story, um, there are lots of promises made to the people of Israel, and one of them, a key one to understand the Spirit's work in salvation, is a promise God makes to put his Spirit within the people of Israel. A key passage is Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27, where it's an atonement passage. He says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, a new heart I will give you. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Promises like that linger over the entire Old Testament. So for a people who are unable to follow God under their own capacities, God makes promises that he will put his own spirit within them and enable them and make them do what they cannot do on their own. And that 
is help, that helps explain why it's when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but this one is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so those promises still linger, and Jesus claims them. And so when, at, the, at the end of his ministry, um, he's talking a lot about the Spirit, particularly in John. He's praying that um, the Spirit will be present with them. And then when he dies and is raised, he tells the disciples before he leaves, wait here till the promise my father made comes. And that's what we see in Acts 2 with Pentecost, the spirit filling Christians. They are um, having been disunited in language, divided in language, now they're united, able to hear each other through the power of the spirit. There's a unity there. And Paul later describes this as God's own love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That's a quick biblical overview. You've got a story of the Spirit in many ways when you're telling the story of the Bible. And this is a personal story. The story of Christianity is the story of God relating to us and doing so in personal ways. And that's, again, reflected in the language of the New Testament when it talks about the Spirit's work. So here's just some verbs that are attached to the Spirit in the New Testament. The Spirit searches. The Spirit knows the mind of God. The Spirit teaches. The Spirit dwells among us and within us. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit cries within our hearts. The Spirit bears witness with our own spirit. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit works all things for our good. The Spirit strengthens us. The Spirit is grieved by our sin. That's just a sample of that personal agency that you see when you see the Spirit at work in the New Testament. And so when you think about the Spirit as a Christian, you think about the Spirit personally in terms of God's saving work and the culmination and the the fulfillment of that saving work through um, the gifting of the Spirit to believers so that you can follow the ordinances of God as he's called you to do from the very beginning. Now, of course, that's an ongoing journey. And so there are some images that give a sense of um, how the Spirit is working in our life that are used throughout the New Testament. And these images give a sense of a work that has begun but is yet to be completed. And so three of the most prominent ones that are linked to the Spirit's work are the idea of a down payment. So Ephesians 1, 14 says, the Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. So for those who have a mortgage, you make a down payment as a promise. I'm going to pay and finish this promise I've made to pay off this house. The spirit is God's down payment, his pledge that he will not let death win over us, that he will fulfill the good work that he has started, that he will bring that good work to its completion. The spirit is God's down payment on your eternal future. And a similar idea, the idea of first fruits. The spirit is linked as the first fruits, and this is harvest uh, imagery. So uh, in, uh, in May, the farmer's market, the French market in Wheaton will op- open back up, and you can go to the French market, and the, the pickings are slim in May. Um, they're greenhouse grown. So it's the first fruits of what will be, by the time you go in July, a great harvest. Um, so the very first taste of something to come. And so in Romans 8, Paul talks about, he says, we know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. 
So that spirit and the spirit's work in us is the first taste of the final redemption that is to come. And so as you, through the spirit, are conformed to the image of Christ, you are a sign that God has invested in you. You're a down payment on a future promise, and the spirit is already displaying these first fruits toward a final culmination that is yet to come. And we groan waiting for that day to come. And then the last image you see a lot is the seal. Um, not the animal, but the like a wax seal, um, an impression that uh, signs, you know, if a king had a seal, it would sign authenticity and ownership. And the spirit is, is um, linked to this idea. You're marked out as God's own. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 1, in him, when you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4 goes on, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. So the presence of the Spirit in your life is, is a mark on your life, that you've been sealed by God, and that you are authentic, you're real, you're, you are his child, and you are headed towards a day of redemption. So you put all this together, and we get a sense of God is working out a saving plan, and the Spirit is actively involved from the beginning. We're seeing the Spirit at work bringing people together, joining them to Christ and one another. And as we live through and at the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, we are manifesting this ongoing work to bring us to the future God has for us, the future when all people who know Christ will be joined to God and joined to one another. It's a whirlwind tour of I believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pause. What, what, if anything, what, any questions that popped up or any thoughts? I know some of you are reading through the catechism. These are um, the, the questions we're talking about today are, I think, question 80 through 84 to 120 is the third article. Um, so I know some of you have been reading that. If you had any catechism questions you wanted to, to raise, this would be a good time. Have you ever wondered anything about the spirit? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's somewhat of an artistic uh, link and a thematic one, but it, I think there's an intentionality there. So you, at the culmination of the fall, you get the Tower of Babel with the scattering of peoples, which was not God's intention. God's original intention was to live in unity with humans, and humans would be in unity with one another and join their lives together. Um, due to our sin, think of sin. Adam and Eve, their relationship is broken, Genesis 3, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. You get Noah and the flood. Humans are just divided, culminating, and we're going to get to God in their own terms, and God casts them down, and they're, they're scattered. And then you get the story of Abraham. God is going to pick one people, and from this one people, he will be the father of many nations. All those scattered nations will now be joined back to God through this one people, and through the king of this one people, Jesus. Jesus fulfills that promise made to Abraham, and then as people are filled with God's spirit and grafted onto Jesus, they're joined back to that story of Israel and to the God of Israel. So there's this overarching story of this unity that God wants with people. And the spirit is the agent who makes that happen. It's, a be it's a beautiful in, in the architecture. And so as we look at the world around us and we see division, this is not the way it was meant to be. We, we're headed towards a unity. And that's when we feel those pangs of unity, like 
this is not how it should be. We should be, there shouldn't be war. There should be unity. There shouldn't be division. There should be oneness. That's the spirit at work in us, in part. Yeah, good question. So if you didn't hear it, the question was, how does this, you know, the spirit or God often works like a still small voice, which is, um, it shows up a couple times in scripture, at least that idea. And you get, um, you're asking internally, if the spirit is working inside of you as a Christian, what makes that diff you different and what is different between a non-Christian? And I think when you read over the whole New Testament, you get a sense, the difference, there is a, a, a massive difference in that we have God himself dwelling in us. And so if you think of human beings and their capacities. Um, apart from the spirit, we don't have the capacity to follow God rightly. We're unable to. We're fallen in our being. Our, our minds have been darkened. Our relationships have been broken. We're not living out the commission God has given us. And you see the people of Israel. They, the spirit works on them, but not within them. And they cannot follow the law. And that's what they, um, these promises are, I will make you be able to do this. I will put my spirit within you. And so that's what's changing, part of what's changing in the New Testament. We have God himself enabling us to live a life that we could not live apart from his grace and his power. And you see Paul, especially in the New Testament, tapping into that and describing the Christian life in terms of life in the spirit and through the spirit. Galatians is the classic. If you read Galatians 5 uh, into 6, and really the whole letter, the spirit's everywhere. Um, at work. And so um, we would talk about um, when you read scripture, for example, or when you hear a command of God, or when you think about living the Christian life, it's um, not just up to you, it's you working in concert with the spirit in you. Um, if you don't have the spirit, then it's just you. And you as a fallen person cannot, cannot manifest that obedience. Um, which is part of the reason we can't brag about when we're, when we're, let's say we're a Christian and we're being obedient. We're, we're not really the agent in charge. We're, we're participating in this, but it's God working within us. So we don't boast, we don't take credit. It's a really good question. Um, I think in part, it's a matter of perspective. So if we look from our vantage point now in 2022 in the West, in America, um, in a kind of following, falling Christendom of the West, it looks very depressing. 
Um, if you were in other parts of the world, um, the Spirit's alive and at work, and you see the church doing amazing things, um, particularly in the global south today, um, but elsewhere. Um, so part of it is, it depends on where you're looking. Um, but if another part of it is that the church has always fallen short, and behind the church is Israel, who always fell short. And behind them is the story of humans who always fell short. And so there's a pattern of we cannot um, live in the kind of, live the kind of life we've been called to live, um, partly due to the effects of sin, partly due to our own finitude. Um, and so we wait for the day, longing for that future when we will be raised from the dead, able with new capacities to do what we've been called to do. And that amen, yes, come Lord Jesus, it has not yet been here. Um, so I often... When I teach church history, my students get depressed because church history is terrible. <laughs> um, in that the, the story, even the great councils were often political moments. They were full of manipulation. There was, um, it was like having a political convention and then it's sanctioned by God. And if you look at the church, it's really messy, the history. Um, and at some point you could look back and become disillusioned. The church has never been all that great. But that's also hope <laughs> in the sense that all that that God has been with the church, even though it's never been so great. And as we look at our church and the church, it's, we see the flaws, and that's the way it's always been, and yet God works, and yet he's faithful. And so it can be a, a sense of freedom in the sense, yeah, we, we do see a lot of problems in our church, but the church has never been without problems. Um, and we're always on this journey towards this future. The church, in some sense, the, church, the true church has yet to gather in its full form. It will gather before the throne of Jesus. And it will be what it's always been called and destined to be. The Spirit will continue and complete that work. Maybe one more and I'll keep moving. There'll be more times of questions, but we'll get through all our phrases here. Yeah, it's, it's another form, or similar form, of that, that question of when we look at the New Testament, particularly Acts, it seems like there's all sorts of amazing things happening, and if that's the measure of a church that's growing, or if that's what a church should look like, we look around and say the church doesn't measure up. Um, again, it's, it's partly a matter of perspective. So if you talk to um, uh, some Christians, particularly from other parts of the world, they're very animated about how the spirit is at work in, in miraculous ways, um, where the, the vocabulary and the, the ways of talking um, highlight some of these um, this miraculous spiritual work. Um, I do think when you look around, you don't see the kind of actions you see in the New Testament, not the same kind of dramatic healings and dramatic moments that are narrated there. But we do see um, people being healed, sometimes through um, the force, you could say the forces of, of medicine, which if you look at the history of, for example, if you look at our own country, many hospitals, um, most of them were sparked and created initially the movements by Christians who were investing in communities and providing 
ministry for people who didn't have access. And um, many, the history that leads to a culmination of a doctor's visit that can lead to healing has the work of the spirit behind it in some ways. God has been actively at work. Now, that's not the same thing as Paul you know, lifting up someone with broken feet, as he does um, in Acts 14, for example. And yet the spirit's not absent if you have eyes to see. Um, and there are lots of different accounts of, should we see that kind of work of the spirit um, here? And if, if not, is it our fault? And some people would give an accounting saying, yes, it is. Other people would say, think of Jesus says, the spirit blows where he wills. So our job is to work, you know, to be available and work with, in tune with the spirit, but the spirit will do what the spirit does. We're not really in charge, in other words. Um, that's a sense of, we don't want to, on the one hand, say, well, that's a sign that we're so sinful that we're inhibiting the spirit's work, as if we're in charge of the spirit. Um, that's like the force. You know, I'm not in tune with the force. It's not really working in me. On the other hand, the spirit, the fact that we don't see things should be a question mark for us. Why aren't we, why aren't we seeing these things? And the, the answer to that is, is obedience. And we just hold both of those in tension. Does that make sense? I'll do one more. Then I'll, we'll go to the uh, Holy Catholic Church. Feel free to push back. That's a good word. So I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. So what does that mean as far as that third article of the creed? Um, in many ways, we haven't left the discussion of the spirit. So the, the church is formed at Pentecost. The spirit is the animating force and the one who gathers the people that are called the church. The catechism in question 92 says, what is the church? The church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth called and formed by God into one people. The church on earth gathers to worship God in word and sacrament, to serve God and neighbor, and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. So that idea of the church being the people who are gathered, um, both here and in heaven, um, that's the Spirit's work. The Spirit is the one gathering the church and uniting them to Christ. And that helps explain the image we see in the New Testament of the church as a temple. Um, think of 1 Corinthians 6, where... Um, Paul is going into his, um, it's a plural you, or as I say, a y'all, so I'll go into my native Texan. Or do y'all not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's a plural thing. Um, we, our bodies, are the place where God resides. Temples are where gods live. Where does God live? He lives in y'all, in us. Um, for we were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with our bodies. Our bodily obedience, our bodily life, is a manifestation 
of the Spirit's presence in us. Um, and that's played off throughout the New Testament, particularly you get a sense of in Ephesians 2, which is working out the, the implications of joining of Jew and Gentile for the story of, of Christianity. It, it describes us, in whom you were also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Anytime you see the word spiritual or spiritually in the New Testament, in your mind, capitalize that spirit. It's not spiritual as in, you know, oh, I'm spiritual. It's capital S, Holy Spirit. So in whom you are built together spiritually, the spirit through Christ is building us to be a dwelling place for God, where God is at work and through whom God is at work in the world. So to put that into our biblical story, um, when we say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, holy means set apart and Catholic means universal. And so I believe in this set apart people for the world, for the whole world, who've been gathered together to be God's people in this world, where God is demonstrated, where the reign of God is seen, where the fruit of God's work through the Spirit is displayed, who are filled with the gifts of God. If you want to see God at work in the world, you look at his people at work, and you're seeing that reflection. And that's a confession of faith. I believe. So in the midst of our disillusionment with the church, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I don't often see it. It's, not, it's sometimes a confession of faith rather than sight. But I believe in this people that God is gathering. Not as if I am the object of belief. I'm the one I'm believing in. But I believe that God is doing this work. That's what we're confessing when we say, um, say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Does that make sense? Any, any thoughts or questions on, on that theme? You see, it's very related. There's a reason why the things in the third article of the creed are um, under the spirit. Yeah, that's a good word. I, in the sense of, um, think about your own life. I mean, we're promised the Spirit's in us. It's a down payment. It's a first fruits. And even those images indicate the work's not done yet. The mortgage isn't paid off. Um, the harvest has not arrived. But it's heading that way. And so to discount the Spirit's presence because things aren't right is to misunderstand the Spirit's presence. The Spirit's working towards this, but we have not yet reached our final destiny. We're not at that final stage. And so we're still, while the down payment has been paid, we're still struggling to make the payments. And yet the spirit is, is doing the work. Um, so identifying the spirit with the glitter, with, it, oh, success, is um, not necessarily what we should be looking at. And you get the sense, you know, Paul in his talk of sufferings and his talk of um, um, his when he was displaying Christ to the people, I'm thinking particularly of, um, there's a passage where he's saying he's making present the afflictions, um, I think it's to the Corinthians. Um, 
he, he's doing that through the power of the Spirit, but it looks like suffering for him. So things don't always um, lead to glitter and success. I think in that con- in the context of that passage is definitely communal, for sure, and I think it's a, it primarily communal. My body's a temple; temples are where God lives, and yet I wouldn't I wouldn't cancel it out and say it's that doesn't mean that your individual body is not also a place where God dwells, because there are other passages. We'll look at one later, Romans six, where it seems to be pretty individually focused, and it doesn't use the temple imagery, but the spirit is is there, and the spirit is about how should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, and he works it out through the Spirit. And so there are individual applications to this interior presence of the Spirit that um, could lead you to say, my body's a temple, meaning my body has been set apart because the Spirit of God's in me, and I don't, um, I don't defame or um, denigrate the place where God is dwelling. But I wouldn't limit it to that. It's definitely meant to be seen as a plural reality because we are not just our own. So to be a Christian is to be part of a family and to be joined to others. Think of how we practice baptism. The congregation claims that child too. We are born of water and blood. Um, And so in that sense, unified. So there is no us. That's that's another part of the dimension. Um, We are all up in each other's business as I tell my students in some ways, and, and would say to us, um, you are held accountable by your community because you're family. Um, and so that, that would lead to, any, to pushing against any kind of individualistic idea while not erasing. By the way, feel free to always, you can always push back and ask questions. Trust me, my students do all the time. <laughs> Wheaton students are known for trying to stump the professor, but I, I've learned to avoid at least dodge and weave. Yeah. Yeah, good question. So in the Nicene Creed, it says Holy Apostolic Church. And um, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, and there are some Protestants who would follow this as well, the apostolicity of the church is something historical and mediated. So you would have an account that um, when the Spirit works at Pentecost and then works through the people of God, the Spirit is, that work doesn't cease at the close of the New Testament, and the Spirit is still working through the leadership of the church uh, up through this day. And we can trace out that authority that's given to the apostles, that kind of special gifting and special position through the institution 
up through this day. Catholics would have one narration of that. Eastern Orthodox would have another narration of how that works. But it's, it's looking at the church as a, an instrument of how salvation is mediated, mediated over time to us. And so it's very historical. And so the fact that you can claim apolicity is a, a claim that the salvation that is available in and through the church now can be linked back to the salvation offered by in and through that first community, which came from Christ himself. Um, many Protestants would have a, an account of that which would say we are, apostol we, we are um, apostolic in the sense that we preach the same gospel that the apostles preached and we have the same spirit they preached, but you don't try to have that historical continuity through the institution. Um, there are different Protestant ways of accounting for that. And um, part of it is that the, the Reformation for some offers a historical break. Um, where you, you are breaking from at least the, the historical stream. Others say, no, there's a, another way of connecting that history. Um, so there's just a wide swath of interpretations of that. So the, part, of the, part of the decision we, when we think through that phrase is, is, it, is the union there through Christ and through the gospel we're preaching and through the spirit, and that's what links us to the apostles, or is it through that ongoing mediation of continuity through the institution and through history? Um, I, I, I was dodging the Anglican part because I don't know it that very well. Um, yeah. I would, um, you know, I'm, I'm, when it comes to matters of ecclesiology and Anglicanism, I'm probably a bad Anglican, or at least a, um, a, I don't know fully, but I, my suspicion would be Anglicans, the Via Media, would, would have a, a, a link of both. But I was going to dodge that part of it. I will leave. I will leave that to others to interpret. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you have like the sense the, the people who formulated the Nicene Creed what they meant by the whole apostolic thing at the time and why what they were up to or doing in there? I take um, in Nicene that that's the Nicene Creed that we know is at the Council of Constantinople in 381, and they're linking back to the actual historical kind of predecessors. And so I think they see it as a historical claim of some kind. Um, they didn't know otherwise. The church hadn't split. So there's no reason to start to claim some kind of divorce from the concrete historical manifestations at that time. Um, so I, when they're thinking apostolic, they're thinking we can trace our lines all the way back to Christ himself. All right, let's keep moving. We have another phrase. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. So what is the communion of saints? Um, in question 102 of the Catechism, the communion of saints is the fellowship of all those in heaven and on earth who are united to Christ, in Christ as one body through one spirit in holy baptism. And so to speak of the communion of saints is to talk about that union of peoples we have. We live as one. And that happens as we're united to Jesus, and we are, through the Spirit, brought together as one body. And the bap baptism is um, the sign and seal or means by which that happens. 
the word I use myself to think through this is Paul's word koinonia, which he uses quite a bit. Um, the word koinonia can be translated as fellowship or sharing or partnership. And you see it a few times through Paul's letters. Um, and here's a famous one, Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, that where there is koinonia. So any consolation of love, any partnership or fellowship or sharing in the spirit, make any compassion and sympathy make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So in that passage, you're getting this koinonia we have with the spirit, which he leads in, as he goes on in chapter two, continues in this koinonia we have in Christ by sharing and displaying the same kind of pattern he lived leading up to the cross. Um, is a sign of our unity with one another. Paul's joy will be complete when we have one, one mind, one accord. We're living together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. All these um, self-giving and deferential relationships with one another are reflective of that unity we're called to have in the spirit. So the way to think of this is um, uh, we are one. So I have the spirit, you have the spirit. We are one in the spirit, we're united. We have a bond deeper than any human bond in that God has joined us together and we are one living in that unity. And it's a unity that's getting deeper and deeper as we are headed towards the future we are called to. And so it's, a, it's a, in that sense a mystical type of connection, not only with um, those who are here but those who have died. Um, those who are in heaven, on earth and in heaven, we are joined together with the saints, looking forward to the gathering of the one church before the throne. So there's a sense of connection, and we've, we've talked about that a bit before. We are, we are united, one. And so when you believe and confess in the church, you're confessing in the kind of universal body, but also this union that transcends any physical manifestation of the church. Any questions along these lines? Communion of the saints? Um, yeah, I think it was never the church, you know, Jesus's prayer for the church is that they may be one. Um, when we see fracture and division, sometimes it's necessary. So traditionally, um, the early church, they would have said there's no breaking of the church, there's schism from the church. And so a lot of what's happened is um, parts of the church have called out other parts of the church saying you're not being the true church. And we have different people saying that they are. We're in the midst of brokenness, um, and yet we should always be, we are heading towards oneness. So one day, those divisions and fractures will be healed, um, and we will be united before the throne. And so we look forward to that day while doing the best we can to articulate what it looks like to be part of the one church here, and we work towards that unity, even in the midst of the fractures. kind of a, an attempt to acknowledge the fractures, and they're not unimportant, and yet always moving towards something, toward a healing. Um, what that looks like on a daily basis means you, you say and speak what's true, but you're headed towards something that is not just you. <laughs> you're heading towards a joining of, with other Christians who are quite different. 
And the mindset that goes along with that is, as Paul says in Philippians 2, humility. Good question. Good to go. Well, just a couple, uh, three more clauses, and there are about 10 minutes left. So we'll, we, uh, communion of saints, we just did that. Forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. I'll narrate all three of them and then open up to questions, and we'll um, wrap it up for the day. So forgiveness of sins, what are we confessing when we say that in the Apostles' Creed? Um, paragraph 107 of the Catechism says, How does God forgive your sins? By virtue of Christ's atoning sacrifice, in which I put my trust God set aside my sins, accepts me, and adopts me as his child and heir in Jesus Christ. Loving me as his child, he forgives my sins whenever I turn to him in repentance and faith. So forgiveness of sins, the catechism locates it in Christ and that forgiveness that comes by faith. If I were rewriting it, um, I would add the spirit a lot more because I think the spirit's all over forgiveness. For that uniting to Christ happens through the spirit traditionally. And faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, when you see people uh, in the New Testament convert, they repent of their sins and they believe. And this is an act of a spirit um, prompting that. Conversion is seen as a spiritual work. Our conversion is, is through the work of the spirit. Revelation, our knowledge of God, is a spiritual work. Um, we're strengthened in our Christian life and our faith by the spirit. And we walk and live by the spirit. And so the spirit's all over this forgiveness story. Um, a helpful way to think about this is, you know, forgiveness is through the saving work of Christ and it, it's applied or realized in my life through my faith in him. We tend to think of faith intellectually as a set of beliefs. But one way to think about faith is in terms of your allegiance to a king. So faith as allegiance is the idea that you are, it's like pledging allegiance to something. It's not less than mental, but it's a lot more than just a mental affirmation. It's a whole life orientation. Faith is an, a life of allegiance to King Jesus, the risen Lord. And so when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we are thinking not only about a transaction that forgives us for what we did, but also a life of turning away from that sin. And that's the, the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that's linked to our last two, um, resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So the Catechism, question 116, says, what is the resurrection of the body? When the risen Lord returns to judge the earth, he will raise all the dead to bodily life. The wicked will then receive eternal condemnation and the righteous eternal life in the glory of God. Um, when you think about the resurrection, you think about the work of the Spirit. Think of Paul in Romans 8:11. If the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through the Spirit who dwells in you. So Christ was raised from the dead by the Spirit. Um, something I, I catch my students on, Christ didn't rise from the dead, he was raised. It's really important to talk about the Spirit's work because that's the same way we're going to be raised, by the power of the Spirit. So death will not win because your body is a dwelling place for God. God is going to raise it up. And what kind of body are you going to have when you're raised up? Um, the answer in the New Testament is a spirit-animated body. The Catechism says in 117, what do you know about the resurrected bodies of believers? They'll be fully renewed and glorified in the image of Christ, perfected after the manner of his own resurrected and ascended body. That's coming from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, um, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, 
where Paul uses kind of a farming analogy to talk about what goes in the ground and what comes up. And so here's this, those verses. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a physical body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. So what goes in the ground? A body that's perishable, dishonorable, weak, and physical. So perishable, it can die. Dishonorable, it's sinful. Weak, it's liable to die. It's capable of dying. And physical, the word there is psychosoma, a body animated by a psyche. So we are body and soul as human beings. What comes up? Our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. They cannot die. Glorious, no longer liable to sin. Power, no, no longer capable of being undone like our weak bodies are. And it says it's raised a spiritual body. And in English, that sounds like a ghost body. But in Greek, that's a pneumatikos soma. Whenever you see spiritual, capitalize it. Pneumatikos soma, pneuma animated body. So a body, physical, animated by the spirit. Same as we saw in Romans 8, 11. So you will be raised in a glorious, powerful, imperishable body animated by the power of God himself, the spirit who dwells in you, to live an eternal life. There is life everlasting. Life everlasting is life, an embodied life with God in his presence, no longer capable of the fall, no longer restrained by sin. Like Christ's body, um, transformed, transfigured, and now living with God, seeing him face to face, just as God intended in the beginning. And so what we undid, God now redoes to our benefit, a bodily animated life. And the payoff of this, as far as our present life, Paul, you know, if you get a chance to read later on, Romans 6, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And as he goes on in that chapter, so we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our life in the present is a life lived toward a future. As we know that the sin that reigns in this world doesn't own us, but Christ does, and that we will be united with him in this resurrection, this future determines how we live in the present. That's a quick tour of those last three. Um, and we have... Five minutes left for questions about that or anything else. Anything on the, the last last three phrases? I have a question. I've always wondered when we die, what we're told will be recognizable to uh, others. And yet that is not to be the same body that when Christ comes again and restores us to the way he meant life to be before the fall. What's the difference in these two, those two bodies? Yeah, really good question. Um, everything is speculative here. The only, the only, um, because the only resurrected body we've seen is Jesus's, and his was both recognizable to some, but unrecognizable to others. Think road to Emmaus. It was physical. He had, he had, you could touch him. He ate food, but he also passed through walls. Um, and um, there was continuity with what he was before. He had scars. And you also discontinuity, because he was not exactly the same. Um, and so we get, that's, 
that's the kind of, you know, that's the first fruits of our resurrection. So there will be continuity. What we will, what we are right now, there will be a, a link to our resurrected body, but it won't be defining of us in the same way. So think of those scars. They had been marks of defeat. They're, they're now marks of victory. We bear the marks of sin on our bodies in various ways. Those will in some ways still be there, but not marks of crying or mourning or pain. It will be marks of victory, God's victory. Um, what that will look like in our physicality, it's going to be a transformed kind of physicality. It's definitely meant to be physical, but not in the same way we know it here. Um, creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So even the creative world will be transfigured. Um, what that looks like, we know, only hope to know. Yeah. Um, so when we think about sin, we think about sinful actions, but we also think about our fallen sinful being. Like we are sinners who have um, inherited original sin and reflect that in our life. And we can think of sins of commission, things we do, and then sins of omission, things we fail to do. And we all have those all the, almost all the time in some sense. Um, there's individual sin and there's also corporate and structural sin. Like we are guilty. Um, so when I think of, I never, I would advocate never separating them. So when we think forgiveness of sins, yes, it, it, it does mean, you know, we pray this morning for forgiveness of the things we have done. And yet everything we have done is linked to this overarching corporate fallenness that we all manifest. Um, we are perpetrators of sin, but we're also victims of sin. We are, um, living in, um, as individual sinners, but also we, we sin collectively by things we do and fail to do when i when i say forgiveness of sins all of that is included i think yeah we are um unable to extricate ourselves from um, sin and we are colluding with it all the time and so we're both affected by it deeply and victimized by it it's a power and principality over us but we, it's like Stockholm Syndrome. We've, we've cooperated with our hostage takers and we are also annoyingly so. We have two more and we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, ultimate allegiance goes to Christ. That's what a Christian does. So to have faith in Christ and to proclaim Jesus is Lord, Lord in the context in which that phrase was written in scripture was a political claim as well as a spiritual one. Um, so your bodily life is shaped by your allegiance to Jesus. And that has bodily implications which are political. Um, what that politics looks like doesn't fit any category of politics in our world. Um, it's gonna look radically different. Um, and people have radically different interpretations of what that looks like. But I think that's a pretty non-negotiable. Um, that's why, um, you know, in Ephesus, the, the sellers were ticked off. These guys are turning the world upside down. Um, and it wasn't because they were just preaching spiritual, non-embodied realities. They were affecting bodily life. So we should be living 
in the broad sense of politics, far transcending contemporary American politics, like a, a life that displays a bodily uh, temple of God. That's a politic. Last question. Yeah, really good. Um, so the word for spirit, that koinonia word, partnership, sharing, um, demons force in scripture, the spirit indwells and works with you. So there's not a sense that you're just a puppet on a string. Yeah, um, so that idea of uh, the spirit working in you, you think of koinonia, we have koinonia with the spirit, it's, it's partnership. Um, demons in scripture force people, they act against people. Um, the spirit works within and through. Um, so there's, there's a, a unity, and it doesn't cancel out who we are. It, it fulfills who we are. And so the spirit, um, even though we'll have spirit-animated bodies, it's still going to be us. We were created with, with wills, with activity, with consciousness, with um, a God wants, in, in this sense, partners. He wants covenant partners, people who live with him and work with him. He didn't make Adam and Eve puppets. He wanted them to work alongside him and image bear, bear his image. Um, so the spirit's gonna work in that sense, I think, not in a competitive way, but in a fulfillment way. I'll end with this. The part of the, in the background is when you think of God, we tend to think of God as our competition, as if more of God means less of me and more of me means less of God. But God is not our competition, or better put, we are not God's competition. God can be fully in something and actively through it, and we can be involved because we're not rivals. Um, he is transcendent in that sense. So that non-competitive relationship is really important on questions like this and so many others. I hope this is helpful as we look at the third article of the creed. Um, it was fun to think about it. Oh.